Dear listeners, just a quick note before we get started, we now have a Patreon page. If you've been enjoying these episodes and would like to show your support, please visit patreon.com slash Sarah Henlicky Wilson to support the show. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks. All right. Thank you very much, Pastor David Priebus, and thank you for the invitation to conduct this uh, workshop this evening. Uh, for those of you who know me, I you'll remember that I'm a rather old-fashioned professor. And when Pastor Drevis asked me to do this, I said, sure, I can give a lecture for 40 minutes. That's, you know, like the air I breathe, particularly on this topic, which excites me. Uh, because the person and the work of the Holy Spirit are often a kind of unrecognized gem in our own tradition. And I'm even going to talk later on about how the Holy Spirit disappeared in Lutheranism uh, in a particular historical episode, which I think is quite telling. Uh, but I want to begin by going all the way back to the early church and its uh, settling of the doctrine of the, tr uh, of the Trinity, which would concluded in the affirmation of the personhood of the Holy Spirit. Now, you all are familiar with the old uh, uh, simple explanation, one God and three persons. So what we're saying in the doctrine of the Trinity is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each persons. And if we say that the Holy Spirit is a person in the very same sense that God the Father and Jesus the Son are persons, we're saying several very important things. First, we're saying that persons are not reducible to their natures. Let me illustrate. Personally, I am Paul, and I can identify myself by telling you a little bit of my history. Paul who? Uh, was originally a New Yorker, spent six years in Slovakia, and 20 years ago came to Roanoke College. Oh, that Paul. That identifies Paul personally. But you could also say, what is Paul? And you would answer, probably, I think, a homo sapien, right? He's a member of a certain species. That's his nature. Okay, so when we say that the Holy Spirit is person, we're saying that he is like Paul uh, and not reducible to the status of being homo sapien. He personally exceeds or goes beyond what is given to him in his nature as a homo sapien. Likewise, it's not very well thought out to simply say the Holy Spirit is divine or the Holy Spirit is God. That reduces the Holy Spirit to the divine nature and overlooks what makes him special, what makes the Holy Spirit personal, right? So the Holy Spirit cannot be reduced to his divine nature, but instead we have to look at what specifically personally characterizes him. And secondly, in this connection, it also means that the three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are not reducible to each other. They are distinct from one another. 
Uh, and so if you simply say, well, the Holy Spirit is God, the Father is God, Jesus the Son is God, you obliterate what makes them personally distinct. It's like saying, Pastor David is a homo sapiens. Uh, Paul Henlicky is a homo sapiens. And that's what really matters. Well, yeah, it matters in one sense, but it doesn't specify what makes David David or Paul Paul. So we have this uh, double affirmation uh, then that the three persons of the Trinity are not reducible to their divine nature and they're not reducible to one another. Each person has a distinct identity and accordingly a distinct work. Now, Pastor David and I are both pastors and we both do pastoral work, but Pastor David's specific pastoral ministry is not identical to my specific pastoral ministry. And we would want to then know further, what is it that Pastor David does and how is that similar and how is that different from what Pastor Paul does? Now this teaching of the three divine persons can make us nervous because it sounds like we're making God into a committee of three. And that would be a kind of polytheism as if they had to negotiate in order to do anything or something like that. But the doctrine of the Trinity that the ancient church developed has two safeguards against the polytheism. First, they said, what makes God the Father unique and different from the Son and the Spirit is that God the Father is the sole unoriginated origin in God, the unbegotten Father who begets the Son on whom he breathes his Spirit. So there is one God originating in God the Father, and that is part of his personal distinction, that he is the sole source of the deity, as the old language used to put it. Now, this is a little bit hard for us because of a controversy that broke out. I'm not going to go into in much detail, though if you have a question, I'll try to answer it. It's called the filioque problem. And that's that. what that means. That's Latin for and the son. And you'll probably remember when we recite the English translation of the Nicene Creed, when we get to the Holy Spirit, we say who pro proceeds from the Father filioque, and the Son. And that little addition, and the Son, is not there in the original Greek text of the Nicene Creed. It was interpolated. It was added in later on, in fact, centuries later, when the Western and Eastern churches divided. And this is a very obscure controversy. I don't want to get into a lot of the detail of it. But the point is, for the Eastern church, this addition was wrong because it obscured the fact that the Father is the sole fount or origin of the divine persons, the unbegotten Father of, who begets the Son on whom he breathes his spirit. The second safeguard against polytheism is specifically connected to the, the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit proceeding from God the Father to rest upon the Son, as you can picture in the story of Jesus's baptism, how the dove descends from heaven from God the Father and, and rests, alights upon Jesus, anointing him with the Spirit for his messianic work. And this 
work of the Spirit therefore unites the Son to the Father who sent him, such that Jesus goes on in the power of the Spirit to live his entire life in joyful recognition, Spirit-given recognition of his status as the beloved Son of the beloved Father. In other words, the distinct work of the Spirit then is to unite in love the Father and the Son. And this is also just how the Spirit works in our salvation. The Spirit unites us with the Son by faith, so that in Christ we too are beloved children of God, who in the gift of the Spirit in our new being in Christ return our, loves with, our lives with joy and thanksgiving to the praise of God the Father. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a thing or an impersonal power, who works to unite in love, and that is true holiness, that unification in love. The doctrine of the Trinity gives us a dynamic living unity, not a static nature, uh, one by default, like a block of ice or something like that. Okay, so. When the early church identified the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity, it specified the one person who does this work of uniting the Father and the Son in love, and thus also uniting human beings to Christ the Son and in Christ with one another in love. And that is the sanctifying or making holy work of the Holy Spirit, thereby including them, human beings, in the eternal life of the beloved community, which is God, the Holy Trinity. As such, the early church, and you'll remember, recognized these phrases from the creed also, also called the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. As Lord, the Holy Spirit is creator, not creature. That is, not one like us who receives life from others but the sovereign giver of life to all that lives. Now, chiefly, this designation that the person, Holy Spirit, is the Lord and giver, is the Lord and giver of life uh, is a direct attack on a very common idea, I'm afraid, also today, that the Holy Spirit is simply an impersonal energy like a current of electricity running through a machine to activate. Therefore, a neutral power into which one could tap, magically or scientifically, for one's own, own human purposes, be they good or evil. But no, the Holy Spirit as person and Lord is the spirit of this Son, Jesus Christ, and of his Father, the God of Israel. As this spirit, per particularly, the Holy Spirit has his own personal agenda, which is not reducible to what impersonal uses we might like to make of divine power, but his own personal agenda to justify the ungodly in Christ and to sanctify the profane. How? Again, by uniting distinct others 
into communities of love. And this is, I think, a real great strength of our Lutheran tradition. Sanctification is holy secularity. Let me say that again. Sanctification is not sanctimonious aloofness, like the Pharisee in Jesus's parable who thanks God that he's not like that miserable publican who knows that he's a sinner. That is not sanctification in the old days, don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance, that petty moralism. But sanctification is the freedom to love and to love real distinct others here on this earth, the very earth on which the cross of Jesus stood. So we Christians in the power of the spirit are making holy everything we touch and taste and do on this earth so far as we live according to the spirit. Now, moving on to Martin Luther. We should accordingly grasp that the work of the Holy Spirit is both personal and social, not one without the other, but always personal and social together. Just this is what Martin Luther grasped and emphasized in his teaching of justification by faith. That's what Luther taught, justification by faith. But with this clarification, faith is not my opinion, even my pious religious opinion. Faith is not my willpower, even my religious willpower. Faith is not my decision or any other such human work. But faith is the sovereign work and gift of who? Guess who? The Holy Spirit, who unites to Christ in a particular way. Now, Christ is the crucified and risen one. What would it, and that's what the Holy Spirit did in the life of Christ. It led Christ through the cross to the crown. So what does the Holy Spirit do when he gives us to, gives human beings faith? Answer, he puts the self-centered self to death and raises up in its place a new self, recentered in Christ. Uh, outside of itself, Luther said, uh, in faith toward God now and in love for neighbors. And for Luther, that's the reason why Holy Spirit faith justifies. It is the grace given to believe personally in the grace of Christ for me. And this is very important for me, the sinner, therefore also for all others just as unworthy as I am. Holy Spirit faith, which justifies one, does so by putting one into, therefore, the community of faith by baptism, to be nurtured by the Holy Eucharist, where we pray that for the, in the epiclesis for the Holy Spirit to make this bread and this cup into the body and blood of Christ for us, until the Holy Spirit finishes our sanctification by the resurrection of the dead. So Luther taught basically in accord with the ancient church on the person of the Holy Spirit at work in giving the grace to believe in the grace of Christ for me personally. 
Yet in Luther's day, there were many other agitators around who were claiming new revelations of the Spirit and calling attention to new things the Spirit was doing, so they claimed. Now, in principle, this is possible. The Holy Spirit does innovate as the gospel moves into new cultures and new epochs. In order to keep the gospel mission going, innovation is necessary. But, as 1 John 4, verses 1 to 4 counsels, believers are to test the spirits to see whether they are of God by seeing that they affirm Jesus, the word incarnate, who came in the flesh. Any attempt to speak of the Holy Spirit apart from the word incarnate, the Jesus who came in the flesh to live that one righteous spirit-led life through the cross to the resurrection is some other spirit than the Holy Spirit. As Mark chapter 13, for example, teaches, the world is full of pseudo-prophets and pseudo-messiahs, each one hawking some gospel of liberation, which on examination, however, evades the fleshly cross of Jesus and therefore also the bearing of the cross by disciples. But that's what the Holy Spirit, the truly Holy Spirit, empowers believing in the cross of Jesus for us and disciples accordingly who in the power of the Spirit will bear the cross. And as Paul the Apostle affirms in Galatians chapter 1, there is no other gospel than the gospel of Christ and him crucified for our sins so that the Holy Spirit may justly justify sinners by faith in Christ who did this for them. In light of this biblical teaching, therefore, Luther further developed the doctrine of the Holy Spirit by warning against what he called enthusiasm. Enthusiasm comes from the Greek, and it is a, a kind of an image of being stuffed full of the deity, uh, as if you had swallowed God and now God was incorporated into your organism so that whatever came out of your lips was the word of God. Luther put this in his characteristically humorous way, thinking of the figure of the dove in Jesus's baptism. It's as if these enthusiasts believed they had swallowed the Holy Spirit, feathers and all incorporated God into their own organism so that their own dreams and visions could now claim divine authority, even ones which left the Bible behind with its indispensable witness and testimony to the word incarnate, the one saving self-revelation of God in the crucified and risen Christ. Why is this teaching so important? And here I come to the painful discussion of how the Holy Spirit disappeared in Lutheranism. This is a long, complex story. I won't go into the details. I've written about it in my books. Uh, but let me quickly fast forward 400 years to 1933. 
to the summer of 1933 in Germany. Adolf Hitler had come to power in February of 1933 and was consolidating the National Socialist State uh, in those months from February to August of 1933. And this was creating a crisis for the church because as the National Socialist State adopted anti-Jewish legislation, it was also being advocated in the church that the church, the Protestant churches in Germany should align themselves, coordinate themselves with the National Socialist worldview and therefore expel Jewish Christians, particularly Jewish Christians who had uh, uh, were in the pastoral office. In this crisis, the young Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, collaborated with another significant Lutheran theologian, Hermann Zasse, in writing the so-called Bethel Confession. The Bethel Confession was sabotaged by pro-Nazi reviewers. It never really saw the light of day to such an extent that Bonhoeffer disowned it after he saw how it had been edited. But we have the original draft that Bonhoeffer and Zasse wrote in the August of 1933. And in this confession of faith, modeled after the Augsburg Confession, Bonhoeffer and Zasse aimed squarely at this very root error in the pro-Nazi German Christians, who were claiming a new revelation of the spirit in support of Hitler as the new savior of the German people sent by God to deliver them. To which Bonhoeffer and Zasse, echoing Luther's teaching against enthusiasm, simply said, square that with Jesus Christ. You can't do it. A year later, the Barman Declaration opened uh, with that public confession that Jesus Christ is the one word of God that we are to hear and obey in life and in death. Therefore, there's not another word of God sanctifying Adolf Hitler as the new savior sent to the German people uh, to save them in their hour of need. What we really have to say when we look at this fiasco, Germany was about 80% Protestant, and most of those Protestants were Lutheran in the time of Hitler's rise to power. What we really have to, if we dig deeply, what we see is how the Holy Spirit had disappeared from the consciousness of German Christians in this period, which spiritual vacuum opened them up to this novel doctrine that Adolf Hitler could be their liberator and new savior. So it's very important, I think, to remind ourselves of the church's teaching on the Holy Spirit, his person and work, uh, uh, augmented by Luther's uh, profound teaching against enthusiasm. Well, let me start moving towards um, a conclusion here by uh, talking about um, some developments in recent theology that are, I think, helpful. Let me report on two of them at least and uh, see if uh, 
they might not be useful to us. First of all, in our new global civilization and awareness of cultural difference and religious pluralism, there is a perceived danger in confining the work of the Holy Spirit to the visible Christian church. But some theologians are suggesting, and I'm one of them, that from the Bible and from the church's doctrinal theology that I've just reviewed for you from the beginning, the Holy Spirit is affirmed universally as the Lord and giver of all life. So that wherever there is life, there also is the Holy Spirit at work, even if incognito, so to speak. The Holy Spirit is the life giver. Uh, who unites spirit and matter to make living beings. This is connected with the Greek, Hebrew and Greek etymologies of the word spirit, which is basically a kind of a metaphor for the life breath. What's the difference between a corpse and a living human being? The breath of life. So the Holy Spirit is the breath of God. And that's how I tried to introduce the topic at the beginning when I said the Spirit is breathed by the Father to rest upon the Son, the breath of life that comes from God. So just as the eternal word incarnate in Jesus Christ is the mediator of all creation, according to the first chapter of John, through him all things were made, and without him not anything that was made was made. So also the Spirit of Jesus Christ and his Father is the animator of all living creatures, which therefore possess a dignity, a holiness, a sanctity, simply as living creatures of God. The Church Father Irenaeus uh, in his great battle in the second century against the Gnostics who despised the material creation and wanted to reject it thoroughly, wrote these glorious words that the glory of our God is a living human being. What a remarkable statement. The glory of our God is a living human being. And it reflects this understanding of the Holy Spirit as the universal Lord and giver of life, uh, so that we Christians should be able to discern the presence and work of the Holy Spirit in all living beings, conferring upon them a dignity or a sanctity that is perhaps not otherwise visible. And I suggest that this may help us a lot as we try to think through the urgent contemporary challenges of creation care. I personally am very deeply invested of this. Some of you know that I have a, a small farm uh, in the uh, outskirts of Roanoke uh, in a little country township called Catawba, which we've named St. Gall Farm after the Irish uh, monk who converted the bear worshiping Swiss uh, and we named, gave it that name because we have bears on our property 
and we have encounters with bears rather regularly. And so we're trying to peacefully coexist with the bears on the model of St. Gall. And that is a stewardship of wildlife, a stewardship of livestock, a stewardship of the earth that uh, I've become very uh, uh, personally invested in. And I think one of the things that inspires me and energizes me in this is this recognition that wherever I see a living creature, I, as a Christian, recognize the life-giving work of the spirit in creation. A second possible uh, a new development in theology that may be helpful to us in connection with other religions, and even our secular contemporary people of no religion, even agnostics and atheists. This genuine teaching on the Holy Spirit, again, not confined to the sanctimonious, don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance stuff, uh, of the past, but this understanding that the Holy Spirit is the universal giver of life and also the one who unites in love. And that's what real holiness or sanctity is. This insight into the doctrine of the Spirit may enable us to discern genuine signs of holiness, also where there is not our Christian understanding of the justice of faith alone and Christ alone. Just as Jesus is the saving Lord, even of those who do not know him as such, I suggest, so also the Holy Spirit is at work in those who do not know him, or maybe anyway, it's a matter of discernment. Now we shouldn't use this thought in an imperialistic way, as if such folks were open, quote, anonymous Christians, close quote, as one theologian, Karl Rahner, put it a generation ago. Rahner meant well by saying this, but expressed himself poorly. Why? Because it violates often the self-understanding of secular, agnostic, or atheist people. Often such secular saints or saints of other religions are quite clear that they are not Christians. And this self-identification is something we should respect. And yet we Christians may perceive in them genuine signs of the Holy Spirit at work wherever we see the uniting of distinct others in love. I have a kind of a colorful quote from Luther here to illustrate the point even in a negative way. It was a quotation that Dietrich Bonhoeffer liked a lot and often used from Luther. It goes like this, God is more pleased with the curses of the unbeliever than with the pious platitudes of believers. Sounds like Luther, doesn't it? A little bit provocative, maybe a lot provocative. God is more pleased with the curses of the unbeliever than the pious platitudes of believers. What does it mean? What it means is that God is pleased at the secular prophets whose anger and cursing may be, may be, not necessarily, we have to discern, may be truthful statements about the world fallen into lovelessness instead of Pollyanna cover-ups of hard truths 
spoken by the pious for whom faith is putting on rose-colored glasses. So for Luther, as for Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer living through the nightmare of Nazi Germany, God is more pleased with the curses of the unbeliever than the pious platitudes of believers. It's another way of making this point about holy secularity, about the true sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit uh, being life-giving, uniting distinct others into communities of love there in the world where the neighbor is in need. Well, I think that's about what I wanted to do in way of a presentation. Uh, Pastor David, do you have any feedback for us?